listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When I was a kid, we only had about uh, three or four TV stations. And uh, this was the time of year, heading up towards Easter, when you could generally count around here and Christmas, one of the two times when you would get to see one of the you know, Christian Life of Jesus movies, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, or The Greatest Story Ever Told. Uh, what was always interesting in these things was how they get things a little skewed, like how they even, you know, picture Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, like in, in, the, in the greatest microphone ever <laughs> amplified. And sorry, I'm having a few audio issues. In, in the greatest story ever told, Max von Sydow plays Jesus. And, and you look at him with blonde eyes and uh, dark, uh, blue eyes and dark blonde hair, and you think, that, that guy's not Jewish. He's Swedish, maybe. <laughs> Or um, you, you, there's one where, I think it was Tab Hunter. I mean, he's like, it like a California surfer model dude. It was like buff and blonde hair, blue eyes. And, and uh, I think it was Jesus of Nazareth. It's, it's kind of the classic picture of uh, Jesus is like really thin and pale and he moves really slow and he seems really reflective. And I mean, this is a guy who's supposed to have walked across the width and breadth of Israel and grew up in a carpent, you know, doing carpentry work. And you look at him, and you're like, the guy looks like he'd blow over in a stiff wind. This is, this is Jesus? It's not just the pictures of Jesus that they get wrong. It's, it's this whole week leading up to Jesus' sacrifice, leading up to him giving of himself for us. Uh, and even starting on Palm Sunday, they, they get it 
in a way they portrayed it, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Like, how in the world do things go from people acclaiming Jesus and yelling, Hosanna to the son of David, and then by the end of the week, there are people yelling, crucify him, and calling down curses. Well, we, we want to look at what really happened on Palm Sunday uh, from people who were actually there. We're going to look at this passage in Matthew 21 from an eyewitness. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. You can pull one of these uh, Bibles out from the seat underneath in front of you. We're on page uh, 981 in those Bibles. We want to understand what's going on here. Put, it, put aside all the Hollywood pictures and images and you know, preconceptions. What did this really look like? If, if we had been there on this Sunday that Jesus enters Jerusalem, what would we have seen? What would we have felt? What would we have experienced? What was going through these people's minds? We're going to take a few minutes before we really dig into the meat of the text to set the stage because it's, it's really important for what's going on here. Matthew talks about a great crowd that's been following Jesus because of his miracles. Now, as he's heading towards Jerusalem, he starts to talk more openly about himself as the Messiah. John adds the details that this was right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and there's a crowd of people excited about to see what's going to happen. And, and then this was Jesus' entry at Passover, one of the great festivals of, of the Jewish religious year. There would have been hundreds of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem for this festival, along with uh, all the citizens of Jerusalem who were already there. And they're waving palm branches. You can still have your palm branches. Awesome. No? Yes. Awesome. Um, and why, why palm branches? What is that about? Well, uh, can you guys make this uh, symbol with your hand, palm facing out, so we don't offend any uh, Brits who may be watching us, because it's rude if you do it the other way. If you were in the World War II, the GI generation, what, what does this stand for? V for victory, not, not peace or groovy man like the 60s, but victory. That's kind of what these palm branches were like. It, it was uh, a symbol of uh, victory and, uh, you know, rallying together. And, and why would a crowd then be giving Jesus the equivalent of a, a flag-waving hero's welcome? Well, if you look in verse 9, part of the answer is in what the crowds are shouting. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, Hosanna means save us, we pray. Deliver us. Help us. They're quoting Psalm 118. In fact, this was one of the psalms that the, the worshipers would have been singing together as they're traveling by foot, heading towards Jerusalem. This was in the series of songs that were uh, sung and recited as they're heading towards worship for Passover. And in Jesus' time, it had become almost kind of like a, a patriotic song. It, it was uh, associated with a cry of national deliverance because They'd had a brief period of freedom a couple hundred years ago, but then the Romans have come in, they're oppressed again, and, and they're looking for another deliverer. That's why Matthew says in verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up, shaken, not sure what's going on. If you remember, kind of back in Matthew 2, it sounds similar to when Jesus is born. And there's this news when the Magi show up that a king of the Jews has been born and the whole city is 
wondering what to make of this. And now Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. And, and this dramatic entry brings together all these hopes and expectations. And it's hard to believe that these people were paying a lot of attention to what Jesus said about who he was and what he's come to do. They're looking for the deliverer, the rescuer. They're looking for another Moses, another David. That's why they're acclaiming him as the son of David, the king of Israel. And, and they remember they're great national heroes, and, and Jesus is intentionally aligning himself with the prophecies around the messianic king, God's anointed. And they think, this is it. This is the guy who's going to set us free. It's finally going to happen. We are primed. He's going to step in and everything's going to be right. So let's roll. And Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he goes not to the Roman fortress, but to the temple. And he does what nobody's expecting. Look in verses 12 and 13, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who were selling and buying there, overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Well, what, what's going on here? Well, when the Jews came to the temple to worship, they had to pay a temple tax. And you couldn't use a Roman coin because it's got Caesar's picture on it and it says Caesar you know, is Lord. So they have to change it for money that can be used to worship God because you can't worship God with a graven image, right? And in changing that money, yeah, there's a little bit of profit to be made, and they're making a good return on all the animals that have to be sold to, to be sacrificed, and maybe they were making more money than they should. That's not really evident in the text, but in any case, it has become such a big business. It has become such a commercial enterprise that it's making it hard for people to actually come and worship God. Because Jesus is about seeking and saving people who are far from God, not making a profit off of them. Jesus is about taking down barriers that are between God and people, not, not putting up more barriers that you have to push your way through to, to get to him. And so instead of driving out the Romans, he drives out the religious system. Instead of condemning the, the wicked Gentile oppressors, he condemns the religious leaders of God's own people. I, I think what's going on here is, you know, the, the crowds that are following him, they like the miracles. They like the free food. We, we'd like to have more of that, right? And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are, are looking for someone who will fit in their system and, and be a moralist and tell people, you know, to clean up their acts and, and do better and, and obey God better and sin less. And, and the, the zealots, the uh, political revolutionaries are looking for someone to pick up a sword and be the, the hero that's going to drive out the Romans. And Jesus disappoints them all. He doesn't live up to anyone's expectations for who he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. And, and then the crowds alienated and disappointed, some of them end up shouting crucify him within the week because he's not the Jesus we wanted. Now, we understand that this is all part of Jesus' plan to go to the cross. It all shows his perfect obedience to the Father's will, how he fulfilled everything that the Father promised and how he would be the sacrifice to reconcile us to God. 
But either the people don't get it or they don't care or they're just disappointed. And they turn on him and, and they walk away, many of them. And that's what happens when we assign a role to Jesus that is not really his. We come up with a plan for Jesus, something we expect him to fulfill, and he doesn't do it. And then we can become embittered. Can, can any of you relate? I mean, there are times that in my life that I felt let down by God because he didn't do what I thought he should do or would be the right thing to do or the good thing to do. I mean, does, doesn't that ever happen to you? God, why, why couldn't you answer this prayer? I wasn't even asking for something selfish or sinful. It just doesn't make sense. Why didn't Jesus answer that prayer? Why, why isn't the church the way it should be? Why is my life so hard? Why, why are things so difficult? Why is it painful? And some people get so hurt or disappointed that they end up walking away. We want to see who Jesus really is. Because that's the question the crowd is asking, right? Who is this? And Jesus is going out of his way to show that he is the humble king. He is the humble king. And we want to see how Jesus expresses that and what that means for us and who Jesus is for us in this, in this section of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is the humble king who rules with gentleness. That's the first thing. He's a humble king who rules with gentleness. Jesus enters Jerusalem, did you notice, in a way that intentionally highlights his gentleness. He, he's riding on a donkey. He doesn't come in on a war horse. He doesn't come in with an army. He's not in a chariot. He, he's not coming in from this position of power. And, and that's the point of Matthew connecting Jesus to the fulfillment of this prophecy of Zechariah. That's the, the prophet that he's mentioning there in, in verses 4 and 5. This is fulfilling what was spoken of by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. If you want to affect change in this world, I mean, in, in that day, you, you get up on a war horse, right? We want, we want tanks, we need guns, we need power, we need, you know, stuff. And, and here Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Jesus intentionally connects himself to this prophecy, this promise of a king who's going to come and rule in humility and bring peace to the nations, as Zechariah goes on to say. And, and I think what Matthew's highlighting is that Jesus is not coming to subjugate. He's not coming to control, to dominate, to conquer us. And if we're honest, you know, there, there are times that I like the idea of you know, standing up and fighting and jumping up on a war horse and strapping on armor and picking up a weapon to smite God's enemies, who also happen to be mine, of course, conveniently. We've got to beware that temptation of thinking that, that that's doing Jesus' work because here he's showing what kind of a king he is. I, I, don't give Jesus an identity that is not his. I, I think that's the warning Matthew is giving us. Do you see that, right? Like, 
this, this desire for, like, judge Jesus. I, I know you're going to come in power, Jesus, to, to rule and, and to reign and judge evil and destroy it one day, and, and really you ought to be doing that now. Because it's a mess down here, and, and those people are really ruining everything. And they need some smiting. So get out whatever it is you smite people with in the 21st century and, you know, stop, stop people who are doing wrong things. Except me, of course. I'm really thankful for your grace for my sins. Or there's, you know, genie Jesus. Like, he's, he's the genie in a bottle and, and we pop it out whenever we need something. Jesus, I need you to do this for me. I, I need you to grant my wishes, make me financially comfortable, take away my problems, solve this thing for me. Or there's Guru Jesus, where you know, we'll, we'll sort of take advice from him and, and try and pull out the, you know, the key ideas without really acknowledging that he has control and authority over our lives. I, I really, could we have like a life coach kind of thing here? I'm not so sure about the whole Lord part. But the real Jesus is so much better news. Jesus is Lord. I mean, you notice he doesn't, he doesn't tell people not to praise him. He doesn't stop the parade. He doesn't say, oh, I don't deserve this. It's not a false humility. I mean, think about this. They're, they're, these are not people with a lot of clothes to throw around. Uh, some people estimate that people in Jesus' day may have had 10 or 12 items of clothing in total, and they're throwing their cloaks on the ground and putting them on the donkey. Can you imagine what that's like? Right? Like a, a hard, dirt-packed road. You guys have seen those with donkey droppings? And, and Jesus is allowing people to do that, and, and it's saying he's worth it. He is worth it because he is the Lord. Everything that we have comes from him. He deserves the accolades and the praise and the worship. And he is the king. He does deserve our obedience. He does deserve our trust. But he's the humble king who's gentle and patient and kind. And he doesn't come to domineer or conquer or beat people down. And that has something to say about us and how we reflect what Jesus is like. Because what we think of God is what we're going to reflect to the people that we go out to be ambassadors of Jesus for. He is the gentle king. He's showing us what his kingdom and his kingship are like. And he's the humble king who rules with an eternal purpose. With an eternal purpose. I love how, how Jesus always cares about daily needs and, and practical realities of life. But did you notice he, he doesn't give the crowds what they probably want? There, there's not another big feeding of the 5,000 here. This is a large crowd. He, he's not doling out the, the miracles and the spectacle. I mean, sometimes we can read through the Gospels or read through the Bible, and it just seems like there's miracle after miracle, and there's actually not that many, and they're kind of concentrated in specific places over thousands of years. And Jesus does not give these people what they want or what they're expecting. Jesus cares about justice in society. It matters how we use military power, political power, 
But again, he doesn't go to the Roman fortress and condemn them and, and drive them out because his kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't mean it's out in the sky somewhere. It means it, it doesn't operate the way the kingdoms of this world work. It, it runs on different rails. It values things differently. It doesn't use the same channels of power. Look, look back at that passage we saw earlier in, in verses 12 and 13 where he goes into the temple and, and he cleans it up. He overturns the money changers' tables and the seats of those who are selling birds, and he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. That my house shall be called a house of prayer comes from Isaiah 56, where it's part of God's promise that the Messiah will come and establish a relationship with God in a way that nobody is left out. There's always access to God. There's always a place for outcasts and foreigners and God's people to come together and worship him. And Jesus wants to open that up for everyone. And, and, and when he talks about uh, you have made it a den of robbers, he's picking up this imagery from Jeremiah and, and some of the other prophets. Now, again, it, we don't have anything in the text that says there's specifically like something illegal or unjust happening here in how money is being handled. What Jeremiah was actually getting at in, in calling the temple a den of robbers is that people would come together and worship and sing and say things and affirm things and then go out and live totally the opposite way the rest of the week. So that the temple becomes the place where it's okay to be a robber, to be a thief, to be an adulterer, to be a liar, to be immoral, to be unjust, to oppress people. That's what the den of robbers things is about. It doesn't mean they're literally coming into the temple and robbing people, but it's this picture of hypocritical worship where God's people would come together and affirm things and sing things and pray things and then never give a thought to living them out. So that to look at the gathering of God's people in that day, it was like looking at a worship house of thieves and robbers, Jesus is saying. There's, there's no apparent, you know, obvious religious malpractice or injustice happening here, but, but Jesus is actually criticizing the whole system of sacrificial worship, especially how it's grown to be a big business that has consumed so much of people's time and energy and made it hard for people to actually get to God. And, and in, a, in a way, there ends up somehow, apparently, there's a little bit of a profit motive that's gotten melded into what's happening in worship so that there's a financial vested interest in what's being sold and who gets the benefit of it. And that's always a, a red flag, right? It should be. That, that we're here worshiping and leading and serving, not out of some financial motive, not out of making a name for ourselves, not, not out of advancing ourselves, but, but that's what the religious leaders were doing. And Jesus is coming also to say he has authority over the whole thing. It, it was an, a lived out reality of what when Jesus said a few chapters ago in Matthew's gospel, one greater than the temple is here. He's coming into this place and, and saying, this is all really about me. 
And, and my agenda is to be the sacrifice who will lay down my life to rescue and to purify God's people. That's my agenda. Not, not making a name for myself. Not uh, managing the system and, and making it work for me. But to lay down my life in self-sacrifice and service for others. And we want to be careful that we don't give Jesus an agenda that isn't his. That's Jesus' agenda. To lay down his life in order to rescue and transform God's people. Is that what you think Jesus' agenda for your life is? To rescue you and transform you. To make you become a person like Jesus who loves enemies and prays for those who persecute and bless those who curse you. I mean, sometimes that's not my idea of Jesus' agenda for my life. Sometimes it's more like, I really think, Jesus, you ought to be about making me invincible. I mean, we pray that way. Like, Jesus, don't let anything bad happen to me. Keep me safe. I don't want any illness. Watch over my kids. Make sure nothing bad happens. Let my vacation be sunny and let somebody else have bad weather. Jesus' agenda is not to make us invincible. Or, you know, Jesus, bless my work, make me successful. You know all that I'm doing for you. So, you know, I kind of expect that there's going to be some recognition and some reward for doing all that. And, you know, make it all work out and make life go well for me, Jesus. That's not necessarily his agenda either. Or Jesus put the right people in power so things will go well in our country. Get rid of those policies and put these policies in place and make sure everyone around me agrees with me on what it should look like and what we should be doing. I mean, some of those things matter, but that's not Jesus' agenda either. Jesus' agenda is to keep us so close to him that his character transforms us and, and starts to be reflected in us and we start to look like him. And man, I was challenged this last week thinking about this from this passage about how often does that show up in the focus of my prayers? There's nothing wrong with praying for health and success and provision and all those other things, but man, not enough of my prayers are about Jesus' agenda, about making me more like him, about transforming me to look more like him in his gentleness and his humility and his patience and his grace and his kindness. Jesus is the humble king who rules with an eternal purpose. And that's the agenda we should have as we look at Jesus and what he's doing. And then he's the humble king who rules with compassion. So imagine the scene. Again, Jesus strides into the temple and, and he's knocking things around and throwing out the tables and the money changers and turning over things and, and essentially saying, I am the Lord of this place. Now, if that were you, like if you really had that authority and that power, like I am what this is all about, what would you do with that? I mean, I'm going to get the corner office. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to have, uh, you know, nice lunches on the company bill. I'm, you know, I'm going to make sure everything pleases and suits me and, and it's all shaped to, to what I like. 
Jesus goes into the temple and he kicks down the barriers and he throws the door open. And in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Isn't that an interesting way to use an infinite amount of power and authority and majesty? That Jesus goes intentionally out of his way to notice the people that often get overlooked. The weak, the needy, the broken, the vulnerable. We've seen Jesus heal the sick and cleanse lepers and feed the hungry and, and even raise the dead. And all of that is a fulfillment now of bringing this together of everything that God promised his Messiah, his anointed one, was going to do and the kind of kingdom that he was going to rule over where nobody is left out. Nobody is on the fringes. Nobody is forgotten. Nobody is on the outside all by themselves, alone and unknown and uncared for. That's the kind of humble king that Jesus is, that he looks with compassion to value the people that this world and we tend not to value. Right? Like if I'm picking my starting team, if I'm picking the people that I'm going to pay attention to and notice, how often is it the people that get overlooked? I mean, I want to hang out with the A-listers, right? I want to hang out with the cool people. Jesus intentionally, how often in the Gospels does he go out of his way to notice the people that get overlooked and forgotten, that aren't cared for, that aren't remembered? Over and over and over again, oh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful king Jesus is. It's worth asking myself, do I have the priorities that Jesus has. Because I want to make sure I'm not giving Jesus priorities that he doesn't have. My priorities would be, again, the, the people who are powerful and important and can add something, the people who can bring value, right? I mean, that's the way we run our businesses. That's the way the world works. And Jesus is going out of his way to remind us all of the Father's amazing love for people who are broken and helpless and hopeless and how reflecting Jesus is going to acknowledge and care for and help and heal those people. And that's really the king we want because that's all of us. I mean, we dress up nicely and, you know, we work hard to get good grades and have stable jobs and, and all of that's great. But underneath it all, I'm still needy. I'm just as needy as the blind and the lame and everyone else. I need Jesus. I need a king who looks at me with compassion and sees beyond the brokenness and the mess to see the value that God has written on me by his image and that Jesus is going to redeem. That's Jesus' priority, that no one gets left out, that that we don't close the doors, but we make the table bigger because there, there's always should be more room. It's a, it's a big, big house, my father's house, with lots of room to play in the... Oh, sorry, I'm going off in it. 90 CCM stuff. So I want to make sure that I'm not giving Jesus priorities that aren't his, that I'm valuing what Jesus values and the people that Jesus values. 
if, if I stop assigning Jesus an identity that's not his and an agenda that's not his and, and priorities that aren't his, that means the, the main thing I need to do is trust that Jesus is good and he knows best. He really is the king. And it's good news that he would be king over this world and king in my life because that's the kind of king we all really need and want. Not, not the take charge, storm in and throw things around and, you know, beat up the bad guys. I mean, that's going to happen one day when, when sin and evil will be judged. But I really need a king who is humble, compassionate, gracious, and gentle. He's good and he knows best. And I trust him. I need to trust him. I have to trust him if I'm going to have any connection to the kind of life that Jesus has in himself that he's offering us. We, we wave palm branches, we acknowledge that he's king of kings, that he's the humble king with his own agenda, his own identity, his own purpose. This last week, Amelia was uh, able to take some of her spring break time to go see her parents down in Florida. And uh, man, for many years, that's just been a, a great trip for her family. Her folks have had a place down on, on the Gulf Coast for years and years and years, even from when her mom was a little kid. And but the trips are starting to get a little different as uh, Amelia's folks are, are getting older and her mom's getting a little more frail. And it's a second-story walk-up condo with no elevator and and it's a lot harder for her to get around. She's getting a lot slower. And, and Amelia you know, was calling and texting and talking about that. And it's easy to become impatient when people aren't going as fast as we think they ought to, right? Whether we're driving cars or dealing with a young kid or dealing with an old person or dealing with a friend or a spouse. Like, you're not doing it as fast in the way I think you should. Come on, hurry up, let's get this going. And, and it was good to be reminded of Jesus' agenda, Jesus' character, that I'm there, as Amelia was saying, not to have a vacation. It's different now from going out and sitting on the beach and reading a book and, you know, dipping my toes in the water. Now I'm there to slow down and help mom. And her mom's getting more forgetful, too. I can relate to that. Any of you ever get annoyed when you have to repeat yourself over and over and over again? Or when you have to hear the same stories over and over and over and, and over again? And again, there's a temptation to, to become harsh, to become impatient, to become critical. Why can't you get this? Why can't you do this? I told you that already. And Amelia, again, we were, we were talking about this. How, how this is an opportunity for Jesus to grow us in compassion and patience. Like, my job is not to get her to be a certain thing or have the right answer or do it the right way. Jesus' agenda is for me to show the humble compassion and gentleness that he has shown to us. And yeah, then there's the biting her tongue over the political disagreements with her dad. And, you know, that's another opportunity to show patience, Right? Because the goal is not to win the argument and walk away, you know, having notched a moral victory because I, you know, I straightened them out and put them in their place. That's not Jesus' identity. That's not his agenda for us. That's not his priority. Jesus is the humble king who exercises his rule through gentleness, compassion, and 
patience. And that's where the challenge comes in because that's sometimes not the king I'm looking for, right? The crowds, the people who are following along, follow Jesus as long as he did what they wanted. And for many of them, when Jesus started talking about, no, I'm going to the cross and I'm inviting you into a life that's also going to be about taking up your cross and denying yourself to follow me because it's not about seats of honor and position in the kingdom. It's about who's going to serve. And the least shall be the greatest, and the servant shall be the ruler of all, shall be the greatest in the kingdom. And when Jesus takes an unexpected turn, they said, well, I did not sign up for that. I, I don't think I want that. And they stopped following. And some of us here today, maybe it's just been hard lately, and you're feeling like, is it worth it? Is this what I signed up for? Is, is this what this is? And all I can tell you is Jesus does not promise that it's going to go easy, that it's going to be painless, that your dreams are all going to get fulfilled. He's not going to do things on your schedule. He's, he's not going to necessarily do the things that you want. But he does promise that he's in control and that he is good and that he is the humble king who rules with gentleness and kindness and compassion and you can trust him. You can trust him, follow, and trust in that king. Let's pray. Jesus, it's so good and at times so hard to, to uh, see ourselves in these stories. Um, help us to see you, most of all. To see you in your gentleness, your kindness, your compassion for uh, fickle, demanding, impatient people like us who want you to do something different, who want you to go a different direction, who want you to answer prayers a certain way. Thank you, Jesus, that you know and that you care and that you are humble and gentle and patient with us. Jesus, lead us where you want us to go. Give us what we need. Help us to surrender to you, trusting in your goodness. Thank you. Thank you that you are so good. We pray with gratitude in your name, Jesus. Amen.